one uh, tonight, and uh, I'm looking forward to this. As I said last Monday before we kind of wrapped things up, uh, my challenge to you throughout this entire class is to come with an open mind. Um, because uh, if there's anything that I've learned in the time that I've been serving the Lord is he's wanting to always give you fresh revelation and oftentimes he would give us more if we would just listen but because we're creatures of habit and we learn uh, naturally we learn by memorization by you know putting something into memory and that's the way it is and that's the way I learned it and that's the way it should be um, it's kind of like the argument that I have with some of my son's teachers because they teach uh, for instance math three or four different ways and then it, then tell the child you know you pick which one is easier for you well that's well and good for the child but I'm trying to figure out how to teach them the four different ways and it's uh, doesn't happen very well because I learned math a certain way and that's the only way it's going to get done in my head mm -hmm. and uh, that's a problem when it comes to the things of the word of God I shared with you last week in some cases or maybe it was one of the last semester we were in uh, about 15 16 17 years ago the Lord started just totally turning things that I thought I knew upside down and revealed a lot of scripture to me and I started reading the scripture for what God was trying to say through scripture instead of what I had learned from somebody else and that's tough to do and so I don't want you walking away from this class saying I believe it because this is what pastor taught I want you to walk away from this class with the revelation that God speaks to you out of the word of God and uh, hopefully we'll agree because hopefully I believe that the Lord has revealed it in, in measure. So uh, uh, keep an open mind because all of us are coming from different backgrounds and different philosophies of, of study and even of the word of God. And so uh, we're getting into John chapter uh, one and I just want us to read the first 18 verses together before we, we get into uh, the nuts and the bolts of it. Uh, I'm going to, as much as I can throughout the book of John, divide things up into sections, and then, so we'll read it, and then we'll go back and, and just really dig in as much as we can. Uh, because the way that I am structured, I do the King James Version when I am doing doctrinal studies, and so I'm gonna be reading from the King James Version. Uh, there's nothing wrong with other versions, but I just believe that the King James is the closest to the original manuscript that we have today so in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God the same was in the beginning with God all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made in him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shineth in darkness and the darkness comprehended it not there was a man sent from God whose name was John the same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. 
He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of the blood, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, and the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And so this is... Uh, a lot of people say this is the prelude to his book, but this is really, there's a ton of stuff in this, 18 verses. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm, it's just amazing uh, what we understand just by this short amount of passage. And uh, so in your notes, uh, the word became flesh, chapter one, verse one through eight. Um, you have to understand, uh, and I'm going to give you a little bit of background. I'll let you know when we actually get to your notes. Obviously, you can write notes as you want. Um, remember, we, we talked a little bit last week. Remember, John is writing at a particular time. He's writing around 100 AD, uh, which is about 65 or 70 years between 65 and 70 years after Christ had already uh, died, was buried, resurrected, ascended, okay? And the church that he was writing to had no longer become a Jewish church. Uh, the, the, he's actually writing from Ephesus, and Ephesus was uh, not a Jewish church. Um, and, and, so, and so the Jewish, the church itself was not a Jewish majority anymore, and so John had to write in such a way as so the Jew would understand what he was saying and the Greek or the Gentile. Greek and Gentile we use uh, really interchangeably um, within the concept of what we're teaching. Uh, so the Greek or the Gentile uh, and the Jew, they needed to understand it. And the Jewish ideas were completely opposite or completely strange to the Greeks. For instance, the Jewish concept of a Messiah was unheard of to the Greek. We, we really, we, we fail to recognize some things, um, just simple things. We just don't think about them today even. But each one of us have a different culture or a different upbringing. And we see things from a different perspective and understand things from a different perspective. Even within the concept of the English language, it's different because if you go over to England and begin to talk English, they will use words that don't make sense to me because they think, for instance, go put all your luggage in the boot. Okay. Can't get a whole lot in my boot. But they're talking about the trunk of a car. 
Okay, and, and so the, 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 there's certain things that John is balancing or walking in between trying to reach both the Jew and the Greek. And the, the concept of the Messiah, the, the Greeks had no concept of. Uh, they were totally ignorant of this concept of the Messiah. And so the Messiah on the flip side was the very center of Jewish expectation. They were expecting a Messiah. They were looking for a Messiah. Now they missed the Messiah, but they were expecting a Messiah because they were expecting somebody to come in, set up and rule and reign and take control of the situation and rule from uh, his throne. And, and so John is having to address and reveal to the Jew who their Messiah is and to the Greek who the God is, if you will. And, and so you have to understand that John is writing and, and trying to do some different things. And so this, again, was about 100 AD is when the book of John was written. And so now we come to some of this, this Jewish background stuff uh, here. Who were the Greek praying to them? All kinds of them. All kinds of gods. Yeah. Like the Romans. Yeah. yeah, the Greek and Romans were very mystical people, both. Um, and if you really study history, the different, you know, Rome basically just swallowed up Greece. Uh, Alexander the Great, and then it was the Roman Empire. And if, if you read Daniel, you'll see the, the main Babylon, Persia, Mede, Mede Persians, Greek, and, and Rome, the, the basic main structures of history of, of those groups of people. And uh, so, yeah, they had all kinds of. Uh, deals and then the flip side of a Greek as well. Either there were multiple gods, or they came to the to the place where, which we talked about a little bit last week, was Gnosticism, uh, and we're going to talk about that again here in a little bit, which is kind of a it's unknown, uh, not knowable, if you will. So, uh, in number one here, the word became flesh. Letter A to the Jew, a word was far more than a mere sound. And it was something that had an independent existence and which actually did things. I've got in your notes here, so that that's your first two lines of your notes. Independent existence and which actually did things. John Patterson said it this way, the spoken word to the Hebrew was fearfully alive. It was a unit of energy charged with power. It flies like a bullet to its billet. So, and it was for that reason that the Hebrew was sparing of words. In fact, the Hebrew language had uh, fewer than 10,000 words, while the Greek language uh, had over 200,000 words. And so it's the reason why, because of our understanding of different things, it's a little bit difficult sometimes or confusing, if you will. And, and so we have to understand that uh, is what what John is doing here is speaking the word. And here's under here the Old Testament examples of the power of the word. Uh, I want to just give you, I'll just, if you want to just write in the word and then you can check those references at another time. Um, the first one there, number one, is Isaac had deceived or been deceived uh, into the blessing from Jacob or blessing Jacob instead of Esau. Remember when Isaac spoke the blessing over Jacob, even though Jacob was stealing it, Isaac couldn't pull it back. 
because in the Hebrew culture, it was an, it was a, an alive word. It was a spoken word. It was, it was already established. He couldn't come back. It had gone out, and as soon as it left his mouth, it began to act. In other words, Jacob began to live within the blessing of the father as soon as Isaac said it. And uh, could not, he couldn't stop it. And it, it's, it's why Genesis is stated the way it is. In the beginning, God spoke things into existence and he couldn't just pull it back because the power of his word, it's one of the reasons why the Bible says in the book of Romans that the gifts and callings of God are without repentance because once he speaks it into existence, he does not pull it back. And, 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 and that's a Jewish concept. Jacob over Esau. Isaac did. Um, the next one here, uh, number two, in Genesis chapter one, it was uh, the created word of God. That's what I just referenced. I just didn't give you the actual point. Number two is the created word of God. And God said, let there be light. According to Psalm 33, the heavens were made by the word of the Lord. And we won't get into it tonight, but in the Jewish culture, there was multiple levels of heaven. The heavens were made by the word of the Lord. That's Psalm 33, 6. In Psalm 107, the Bible says he sent forth his word and healed them. Healing came by his word. Uh, number five there in Isaiah uh, 55, 11. It says that um, is not my word like fire, says the Lord, like the hammer Nope, that's the wrong one. Sorry, it was Jeremiah. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty or void. It shall accomplish that which I purpose and prosper in the thing for which I sent it. So number five, it's sent out. It's not, it doesn't come back void. It's, it's, it happens. And then it's such an active, powerful word in verse six, which I read out of Jeremiah. It's, it's like fire, it's a hammer, it breaks up rocks. That's how powerful it is when God speaks. That's why in the New Testament, uh, John or Jesus says to them, if you have the faith of God, you can say to this mountain, be thou removed, and it's gonna be by the spoken word. In fact, if we, if, and, and I don't need to get into that in a couple of weeks, but if you notice that passage that talks about speaking to the mountain, it's, it's in response to a question, why couldn't we cast the demons out? Okay? And Jesus said, this kind cometh forth uh, because of your unbelief. This kind cometh forth not but by prayer and fasting. And a lot of people have taught that it's the casting out of demons that doesn't happen by prayer and fasting. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said it was their unbelief. He said, but then when you have the faith of God, this kind comes up. You speak things into existence, if you will. You move mountains if it's God speaking through you. That, that's through prayer and fasting. It's not 
the, the it's just unbelief because God can use anybody to cast out a, a demon. And, and we'll get into that uh, in, in future weeks. And so in your notes there, you can see there that to the Jew, it was about the spoken word of God. Now, for a hundred years, that's what the Jews and the church were thinking of when they spoke about the word, okay? And, and we're, we're kind of introducing verse one. But when John is writing to now a more Greek church or a Gentile church instead of a Jewish church, he realizes that by just calling him the word, which uh, if you want to write this down in your notes, Romans 10, 17, it's rhema, R-H-E-M-A. That's another word for word. He couldn't use that word in verse one and still speak to the Greek culture, it would only speak to the Jewish culture because the word rhema is the spoken word. It's a literally spoken word where logos isn't a literally spoken word. And so he had to use a different word in order to reach the Greek culture and explain what he was trying to say and the Jewish culture at the same time. Okay? And, and so it, it's very difficult sometimes uh, to see how that operates. And, and so we get all the way 560 years later, in 560, there was an Ephesian philosopher, his name was uh, Heraclitus, and uh, his basic idea was that everything was in a matter of flux. Uh, everything was changing from day to day, from moment to moment, and his famous illustration was that you couldn't step into the same river because the river was always flowing. So every time you stepped into it, you were stepping into new water because the water kept flowing. And the problem with that argument was then, why wasn't the world in total chaos? Okay? And, and so his answer was, all this change and flux was not haphazard. It was controlled. It was ordered. It was following a pattern from, from time. And that to which controlled the pattern was the logos. That was his example. It was the logos. Well, the word in verse 1 and... and I don't know about you, but I, I'm not afraid to write in my Bible to where sometimes it's even hard to see the words. <laughs> uh, the word word in verse one, all three times is the word logos, L-O-G-O-S. And it's not rhema. Romans 10, 17 is rhema. In John 1, 1, it's logos. And, and so this philosopher kind of took the concept of logos and realize that there's everything that's going around while it's always changing and always in flux, there's somebody that's controlling it or something that's controlling it. And he said it was Logos. And so when John comes along and starts writing, uh, I'm sorry, did I say 560 AD or five? It was 560 BC, so it's before Christ. So now 500 years later or so, John is starting to write and he's taking what Plato said of Alexander, Philo of Alexandria, who used the word Logos, and Heraclitus, who, who used the concept of the Logos. Uh, Philo said, basically said it was, the Logos was the pilot of the universe. It was unknown, but something was ordering it, something was making it. And so now John comes along and he's thinking as he's writing and being inspired by the Holy Ghost, 
How do I reach the Jewish culture and the Greek culture? Oh, let me use the concept of the word. For the Jewish culture, it would be that word that is declared. And for the Greek culture, it would be that logos, which is that which is ordered, planned. That which is uh, an idea that has come into existence. And uh, so he, he's writing now in John 1, 1, and he's I'm trying to identify very quickly at the beginning of his book. Listen, I want you to hear me, church. This is what I'm trying to say. That the Logos, the word and the idea or the plan or the order, if you will, the reason is in fact the God that you're looking for. And, and so we get to this beginning here um, in verses one and two, and we have to understand that the Logos is in the beginning, that we're beginning there is the first. So at the first was the word, was the Logos, the blueprint, the plan, the idea, the spoken word of God. And the word was with God, and the word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. Now that can sometimes count, sound, sound confusing. Easier said than done. It's, it can become confusing, but if you really break this down, but it's just following along step by step. At the very beginning, there was this plan. And he, remember that John is writing to lead somebody to revelation. And so you can't take the full verse and put it into Plato. You have to take it line upon line, precept upon precept, here, there, here little, there little, and build your revelation or your doctrine that John is trying to reveal and expose to the, this, this Greek culture. So in the beginning was the word. What he's saying to them is at the very beginning, before time even existed, there was a, there was a reason. There was a plan. There was a blueprint. And then he goes on to say, because it was there, it was with God. Okay? And so, and then he takes it one more step and he identifies the fact that not only is the blueprint with God, the blueprint is God. Okay? And, and then he goes on even a little further in verse 2. The same was in the beginning with God. Okay? Now, Notice what the same is referring to. It's not referring to God. It's referring to the blueprint, the plan, the word, the idea, the reason. Okay? So this blueprint was in the beginning, and this blueprint is God. How can this blueprint be God? Anybody have any ideas? What's a blueprint? It's a design. It's a plan. Okay, when we built this church, we made decisions about what this was going to look like long before it came into existence. Okay, and so as we were building this church, everything we did, the walls that we measured, the platform we measured, was all based off of our vision that we had put on paper. I say we, Angie put it on paper. The architect drew it up, 
And, and, and But she took the, the idea from the ideas that we gave her and spoke to her about, and she gave us the picture and the blueprint, and then everything that was done after the blueprint was designed to fulfill what the blueprint was showing. I mean, right down to what type of screw was gonna be used, to what type of glue was gonna be used, to what kind of T-joint was gonna be used. I was all already done before we even broke ground. Okay? And it's the same principle in this scripture. Before God even spoke the world into existence, he had this plan or this reason, and everything that happened from the beginning of time, God already had it drawn up in who he was going to become and who he was going to reveal himself as. And so at the very beginning of time, we see this, the blueprint is there. The reason is there. The plan is there. The word is there. And then God, and then John says, oh, and by the way, that blueprint is actually God himself. Okay. Now, if you read over a couple of chapters, and we'll deal with this in a couple of weeks, but John chapter 4, John tells us that God is a spirit. No man has ever seen God because he's a spirit. Okay? Uh, that, that needs to be very, we need to grab that right here. God is a spirit. So there was a spirit at the beginning known as God. And that spirit was a blueprint or had a blueprint. And, and what was this blueprint going to become? The, the, the Bible says it was God. So as a spirit, I know this is kind of difficult sometimes to, to explain, but as a spirit, God did everything to get to what God was going to become when he fulfilled the blueprint. Okay. So when he began, when he said, let there be, he already had the blueprint in place that he was going to become to you and I already mapped out, already planned out. But he knew that you and I would never see him because he's a spirit. And so in his blueprint or in the reason, John is saying at the very beginning, God already had it mapped out on how he was going to let you and I see him. You see, we're never going to see God as a spirit. We're only going to be see, see, able to ever to see God, even in heaven. We're only going to be able to see God as he is revealed to us. And he is revealed to us, according to this passage, the word was God. And then we're going to get to it in verse 14. It was made flesh and dwelt among. We're only going to ever see Jesus. Because that's the expression that you and I can handle. We can't see the spirit. No man has seen God at any time because God's a spirit. So what did God do? He made a way so that you and I could see him. But what we never realize or what we never understand, I shouldn't say never, we just never really think about it, is that that was all done before he spoke the world into existence. That's why the Bible can tell us that Jesus was the lamb slain for, since the foundation of the world. Well, he wasn't. In reality, he was slain about 33 and a half AD in Jerusalem outside on a hill called Golgotha. But in the plan of what God was designing, it was done way back when. Okay? 
So this is, and this is where we break, or I break with what is classically known as a Trinitarian doctrine, because a Trinitarian doctrine will say that Jesus was in the Old Testament. They were co three people, co-equal, co-eternal, co-existing. But I look at it, I don't see Jesus in the Old Testament or before time other than in the idea of what God was going to become. My pastor called it the, the envision, envisaged Christ. Okay? God sees what he's going to become at Bethlehem. And so everything that he does from before the creation up to that point and thereafter all circulates around what he's getting ready to become. Which tells me something, and then I'll, I'll get your question. It tells me that he loves us so much that he's made plans a long, long time ago to get us united with him. So would we say the word was Jesus and Jesus was the plan? Yes. Was the life and the life dictating to us today? Yes, and I'll give you some other verses that if you want to write these down, Colossians 2.9. The Bible says, for in him, referring to Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In other words, all of God was in Christ. 1 Corinthians 5.19. It's either first or second. I think it's first. 1 Corinthians 19 and 20. To wit that God was in Christ Jesus. Reconciled. Not just in him like he's in us, but God was manifesting himself. As Christ. And then 1 Timothy 3 6, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest or expressed in flesh. And so, so in John 1 here, John is now getting and piquing the interest of every Gentile and Greek believer of that day because now they are understanding. That the, the, the chaos of their philosophy, that ordered chaos, that, that, that Philo taught, that Heraclitus taught, that mindset uh, of, of I, I can't explain why it just, everything's in motion, but it's all seemingly in order. This was before they knew that the world was spinning on its axis and orbiting the sun and, and doing all those things. And, and yet they realized that everything was moving 100 miles an hour, but something somewhere was ordering it. And now John steps on the scene and says, I'm going to reveal to you the source of the control or the plan of all the chaos you're thinking about. And so he piques the idea of the Greek, but then he uses Logos so that it also piques the interest of the Jew who's been looking for a Messiah, but the Messiah has, and remember, this was written in a hundred. So Jesus has already come, died, rose again, ascended, not even on the scene anymore. So John is now also reaching back to the Jew and saying, you were looking for a Messiah and you missed the Messiah because he was the word spoken and became flesh. And so in verse 3, when it says all things were made by him, that's referring to the word. And without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, the blueprint, the plan, is how everything was made. Okay, I know this is kind of a crude example, um, and we'll get back over here in just a second in your notes, but if you can picture with me God sitting at an architect's desk, that's kind of how I picture it. Okay, 
And he's got this concept of what Jesus is going to be, his flesh, the way he's going to manifest himself and reveal himself to you and I. And John ties that together in the book of Revelations, the very first line of his book, the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's revealing Jesus Christ to us as the word become flesh in the book of Revelation. And uh, so he's sitting there and he's drawing. And so when he speaks night and day, he's speaking night and day and he's speaking all of the birds and, and he forms the, the man, Adam and, and Eve. And he's doing it all based off of what he sees at his architectural desk of what he's getting ready to become a couple of thousands of years later. Does that make sense? Okay, so now let's go to your notes and catch up on a little bit here. <clears throat> See, we're only into the third verse. John is writing this portion of scripture in response to the Gnostics. G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S. G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S, the Gnostics. Their theory held that two things existed, God and matter. And if you, in your notes there, if you want to circle, God was good, matter was evil. And they, I shouldn't say necessarily evil, it was flawed, it was imperfect. God was perfect and, and matter was imperfect or flawed. And, and so to them, God was pure spirit and pure spirit and matter could not coexist with one another. And so John is getting ready to address that. Now, can I just tell you that in some ways, the Gnostics were not incorrect. They were not incorrect in the fact that our humanity, because of the sin of Adam, we can't be in the presence of the pure God. Based off of, well, several things, but the biggest explanation is when Moses asked to see God's glory God said I can't show that to you because you'll be consumed but here's what I'll do I'll create a cleft in the rock you hide in there and as I'm walking by at the very end you can just see a glimpse of my glory afterward because it would be too consumed okay so that even that philosophy carries over into the Greek philosophy or the Gentile philosophy or the Gnostic philosophy or if, if you will and so now John is addressing this, okay? Because the Gnostics took it so far as to say that God was so pure and that spirit of God was so pure and matter was so flawed and imperfect, they used the word emanation. So God had several emanations and the further away from the pure God you got, to the, to the last deity, if you will, was so close to matter that it was impure, that was where God the creator came in. You see what I'm saying? It was flawed thinking, obviously. But uh, I'll, never re I'll never forget the lesson in, in Bible school when we were being taught this, actually by Terrence's husband, John Sobert, and he drew these all these bubbles from the top of the ceiling down to the floor. And he said, that's the pure God, and this down here is the God of Genesis. That was the Gnostic philosophy. And he was almost to where he wasn't even that pure. And then when he created the world, and when he became a man, then he was really not pure. That was their mindset. That's what John is dealing with here as he is speaking it. So 
The further away the emanations of God came, the less pure they became. And that's how the God that created earth could coexist with us because he really wasn't all that pure. And uh, so that this is what John is writing into. So he's writing this to refute Gnosticism. Now, in your notes there, Christianity has always believed in what is called creation out of nothing. Creation out of nothing. It's, it's really one of the, it's one of the things that I use when I deal with an atheist. Because if an atheist thinks um, that there is a Big Bang or a bunch of gases got together and exploded and then we have what we have today, my question is always, well, where did the gases come from? There has to be a beginning. There has to be something. There has to be reason. There has to be a plan. There has to be something that's controlling it. Okay? And so Christianity has always said out of creation was out of nothing. God, in his wisdom, is he, he precedes anything that we classify as time, and then he creates it out of nothing. And then the second thing is Christianity has always believed that this is God's world. This is God's world. And uh, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The first, last, beginning, ending. That which was and is and to come, the almighty. And, and so it's always been taught that the, the creation, if you will, or the Christianity has always held that everything is comes from God and everything goes to God and so now we see kind of all things were made by him and without him there was not anything made that was made when the spirit of God spoke remember that he's not refuting the Jews when God spoke let there be and there was okay that was already pre-planned as the reason behind it okay and so when it says that all things were made by him, that word made in Greek isn't, it isn't like me taking wood and creating a, a box and then I made the box, okay? What that word, all things were made by him was on account of him, okay? On, so in other words, <clears throat> the box that I made for Dwayne, I made in the parameters for Dwayne I made on the color that Dwayne wanted with the right materials that Dwayne wanted. And because I knew what Dwayne had drawn up, that's what I created. So all things were made by him, even though he didn't do the exact actual building. Does that make sense? So God, as he spoke everything into existence, was looking forward to the time where he would become a man. And he created everything for the man or on behalf of the man or with the idea of the man in, in, in mind. And uh, we'll... we'll kind of wrap around to that probably at the close of tonight because we're not going to get past the beginning of this chapter tonight. Verse number four, in him was life and the life was the light of men. Okay? And so John is, he's established that there was this God, this reason, this word, this plan, this blueprint, and now he's starting to un- 
fold what was getting ready to happen. And so in verse four, he's identifying that in him, that word him there is not referring to God per se. It's referring to the word. Okay. He's still identifying the word. And, and we're going to see how he fully identifies him in verse 14. So he's saying in him was life. Now, did not Jesus walk around and say, I am the way, the truth, and the life? So even Jesus is claiming what John is saying. And so in reality, Jesus himself is trying to reveal to man in some veiled speech and veiled language. And we can talk about that at another time as well. But in, in some veiled speech so that only, um, well, let me just say it this way with the veiled speech because I don't want people to be confused. There was, what is the greatest sin that Satan ever did? No, that was his tool or his method. What'd you say? Being proud. Being proud, deceitful. What was what was his what what did he try to do? What's that? He wanted to be God. And greater than God. He grasped after that which was God's alone. Okay? Prior to time, prior to the man Jesus, Satan was doing that. Okay? So and then what did he do in the garden when he began to twist the word of God? What was it that attracted Adam and Eve to the things that Satan was saying? To be the same as God. The serpent talked to Eve and said, God's only said that to you because he knows that if you eat of it, you're going to be like him. And you're not going to, you're, you're not going to, you're, you're going to know good and evil. And that was an enticement to Adam and Eve to break communion with God, to become like God. So now you had the serpent, well, you had Satan himself trying to usurp God's power. You had Adam and Eve that triggered, and the Bible says sin entered into the world by one man, by based off of the desire to be like God. So when God became flesh here in verse 14, when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus couldn't grasp after that because he was setting up an example, even though he had every right to, if you read Philippians chapter two, uh, he had every right to, to grasp after equality with God, but he took upon him the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross is what the scripture says. And it says that right after a verse, verse five of Philippians two, that's, that admonishes you and I to have the same mind as Christ. Because Paul understood that man's inclination is for power and authority. And I can do it on my own. And I can rise up. I can be my own God. And I can, I can be my own controlling force. And Paul was saying, no, 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 no. You've got to submit yourself to a greater authority. Just like Jesus, the man, submitted himself to his greater authority, which was his divine nature. Okay? So he's now saying that he is the life and the light in verse four in him was life and life was the light of men. So in your notes there, uh, simply John means that life is the opposite of destruction, destruction, condemnation, and death. That's three A number one. Simply means that life is the opposite 
of destruction, condemnation, and death. So in the word, the Logos, which was God, we see that you and I can gain security in this life and in the life to come because Jesus is the one person that can make you and I truly alive. Before you have Christ, you're really not alive. Naturally, you're breathing, but your true being isn't really alive until you come to Christ because in Christ is life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It's one of the reasons why I can't get behind even some of the famous people that have tried to say that all paths lead to the same God. Because it's only one that gives life. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. So, number two there, he means eternal life or everlasting life. Now let me ask you a question. In what way did Jesus have eternal life? Based off of, off of what we've talked about tonight, how did Jesus have eternal life? Okay. Jesus was. How was he there from the beginning though? Okay, he was, you're all, you're all not wrong. You're all actually right. But I'm trying to get you to a, a different level. And, and that is simply this. The only way that he was, had eternal life was in his deity. Because his humanity did not start until he was born in Bethlehem. Galatians 5.4. Maybe not 5.4. I think 5.4 is what Christ will affect that he was made of a, he was made of a, born of a woman, made, made under the, I'll figure out the scripture in my head in a minute. But he was made at that point in time is when his humanity came into existence. Okay? So Jesus as a man did not eternally exist except as his deity. So how do you and I have life eternally? What's that? I believe in Jesus, yes. But I mean, as far as the concept of life, were you way back there? You weren't? Be, while you were in your mother's womb, I knew you. I loved you before the foundation of the world. We are eternal beings in the mind of God. Because God as deity does not exist within the confines of time. It's the reason why we have to be bold enough to understand that he did not raise up the Apostle Paul or Simon Peter or John himself for this day and hour. He raised you and I up at this hour. 
He trusted us in this hour to stand upon this and to declare what thus says the Lord because in his plan, he saw who was going to be here. Now, from the time that Jesus was born, his eternal life comes into existence. Now, from there till the end of time and beyond time for eternity as a man. And if you read 1 Corinthians 15, you're going to see that everything's going to be put under his feet. And when you and I get to heaven, we are going to look Jesus face to face because that's going to be the representative representation or the expression of the deity that's existed from the before time began and we're going to see Jesus as he is and the Bible says it this way in 1 John 3 2 I want to quote it the right way 1 John 3 2 says it this way beloved now are we the sons of God and it doth not yet appear what we shall be but we know that when he shall appear we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is so this word there's coming a day when we're going to see the word as it is and it's going to be in the face of Jesus Christ so he's meaning eternal life you and I will have eternal life now notice though what it says in verse 4 in him was life and the life was the light of men okay it's the spark if you will that ignites humanity which lets me know that there is eternal beings from the time they take their first breath they become eternal beings and that has ramifications at the end of the book when you and I are preparing ourselves for the Lord. Okay? It lets me know that heaven is a real place and it lets me know that hell is a real place because humanity is an eternal being from the time we're born until whenever, forever and ever and ever. Okay? Um, so, in number three there, by believing Jesus, or how do we enter into eternal life with him? Uh, number one, he means that we must believe that Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. Now, here's what you have to remember. He's still writing to the Jewish culture and the Greek culture. What is the underlying message of the Greek culture or the, the Jewish culture in everything that they do? It's called the Shema in the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Okay? So if he's writing this, you must believe that God is manifest in the flesh. In other words, we have to understand that he is revealing to the Jew. He's saying, listen, you missed 70 years ago. You missed God representing himself to you or expressing himself to you. Philip didn't miss it in John 14 when Jesus said, he that has seen me has seen the father. And, and I and the father are one. And, and, and what he didn't, what, what we don't understand is that he's writing to these Jews and saying, listen, you missed God in flesh. You missed the word, the plan, that spoken thing, that eternal thing, that life thing that, that lights every man. You missed him when he came 70 years ago. 
But if you'll believe that that is him, you'll have eternal life. And he goes on to say, even in verse 12, and we're going to talk about that maybe tonight. <clears throat> and then number two in your notes, he means that we must take Jesus at his word. So somebody, well, I shouldn't say somebody, a bazillion people have asked me through the years, what do I have to do to be saved? What do I have to do to get to heaven? What's the steps that I have to take? Can I tell you that there's only one person in scripture that ever asked what they needed to do to be saved? And you want to know what Jesus' response was? Keep the commandments. And he said, this I've done since my youth. But one thing you haven't done, sell everything you have and give to the poor. That's, that's the only time in scripture that somebody asks Jesus, what do I have to do to be saved? Which tells me something. It tells me that the church has missed the point of the fact that scripture is not being written so that you and I can figure out how to be saved. It's being written to reveal God to us so that we can have a relationship with him. Because how do you get to heaven? There's a hundred different ways in scripture about getting to heaven. For instance, being born again of the water and of the spirit, according to John chapter three. According to John chapter three, later in the chapter, he that believeth on him. In Mark, he that believeth that is baptized shall be saved. Several places throughout scripture, he that endureth unto the end, the same shall be saved. Okay, so there's all different kinds of things and what's the one common denominator of all of those? Relationship with Jesus. If you have a relationship with Jesus, you're going, to be going, you're going to want to be born again. If you have a relationship with Jesus, you're going to want to have his spirit. If you have a relationship with Jesus, you're going to want to endure unto the end. If you have a relationship with Jesus, you are going to believe in him. If you have a relationship with Jesus, you will confess with the mouth and believe in the heart. Okay? Do you see what I'm saying? And, and so, in this aspect here, we have to take Jesus at his word. So believing in him is not just believing that he is, but it's believing everything that he says, which is difficult sometimes because sometimes he steps on our toes. We, we, we've read it the last couple of weeks. Take no thought for tomorrow. What you're going to eat, drink, wear. And yet every time humanity comes into a crisis, somebody makes a lot of money by somebody going to the grocery store to stock everything up. So do we believe Jesus or do we not believe Jesus? Do we trust Jesus or do we not trust Jesus? I'm just saying what Jesus said. You'll have to make up your own mind on all that. Okay, so now what does Jesus mean by, or John mean by the light? The light which Jesus brings into the world has three ideas uh, attached to it. Um, and the first one is the light which Jesus brings is the light that puts chaos to flight. 
Can I just tell you that chaos operates in the shadows? Chaos operates almost solely in the shadows. And when you don't recognize the shadows, you miss the, the, the light. Because the light will show you the way. It's very difficult if your path is lit for you to step into chaos. Okay? So Jesus brings the light to help us in chaos. Number two there, the light that Jesus brings is the revealing light. See, what John is, is getting ready to do throughout this book is he's revealing who Jesus is as God manifest in the flesh, but he's even going a step further and he's going to take it and he's going to say, and this is how he relates to you and to me. He'll get rid of your chaos, but he's also going to reveal some things. And as he reveals himself to you, it's not just so you see him, it's so you see you. And so the light that lights every man, if you step into the light of the Lord, sometimes you're not going to see some very pretty things because you're going to see yourself in the trueness of who you are. Okay? Which isn't a bad thing, it's just a hard thing. Because then Jesus will, will take you, uh, obviously, a little bit further because then the third aspect of light here in your notes is it is a guiding light. Now, there's a lot of people in Scripture that came and ran to Jesus and what should I do or what must I do? And um, Very rarely is that really talking about salvation. It's what do I do in the situation that I'm in? Okay? And Jesus begins to give direction or guidance or light. And so... John is establishing here in verse number four and number and getting into five is that the light is something bigger than people really think about. And so we get to number four in your notes, the hostile dark. It's another key word. There's, there's, there's key words that will carry throughout the, the, the whole book. Light, life. Now it's going to be darkness. Okay? And the light shineth in darkness and the darkness comprehends it not. Number one, the darkness is hostile to the light. It's hostile. It fights it. Can I just tell you something, though? There's no... There's a reason why the writers in Scripture use the term shadow. Because there really is no such thing as darkness. There's only absence of light. It's like there's really no such thing as, um, which one is it? The heat or cold? The heat. There's no such, no such thing as heat. It's the absence of, no, the other way around. Yeah, there's no such thing as cold. There's only the absence of heat. Okay? And it's the same thing here. There's really no truth to darkness other than the absence of light. So if you can get to where light is, you'll never be in the dark. And it doesn't need to be that powerful of a light to light up. You light one little candle in a room and it lights up the room pretty good. 
Okay? And, and so John is using this. It, it's, he, he also could have been referring to, there was a Persian religion at the time. It's, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. It's something to the effect of Zoroastrianism, something of that nature. I may be saying that entirely wrong, but it is about 26 letters in the name. And uh, this religion had influence on a lot of the people of that day, and it stated that there were two great opposing powers in the uniform, the God in the universe, the God of the light and the God of the darkness. And they had names for them, Araman and Oza, or, or Ormuz, Ormuzd, or something of that nature, O-R-M-U-Z-D. And so the whole universe was a battleground of the light versus the dark and who was going to choose which. And so John is could be saying in this passage, now listen, you have this philosophy, you have this religion that has been teaching this and speaking this about the concept of light and darkness. I'm getting ready to tell you who the true light is. There is no real battle about it. There's just one light and the darkness can hate him, but it can never get rid of him. And then number two, the light that Jesus brings, I'm sorry, wrong one. The darkness stands for the natural sphere of all those who hate the good. Because in him there is no darkness. That's why he will be the light of the, the, the lamb will be the light. There won't, there won't need, be a need for any more sun or moon. It will all be in him. And then number three, there are certain instances where darkness seems to stand for ignorance. The light shineth the darkness. And then the darkness comprehended it not. There is There's three words here that comprehension have three different meanings that I want to just share with you here. Number one, it can mean that darkness never understood the light. Which that's partly true, I suppose. There's people that are living in the shadows or in the darkness that's because they don't understand what the light is. Number two, it could mean that the darkness never overcame the light. Okay. I'm going to give you these answers real quick, coming down, verses 6 to 8 here. Uh, the witness to Jesus Christ. John, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Okay, there are several witnesses throughout the book of John, and I'm just going to give you these because we're going to revisit them in each chapter. But the first one is the witness of the originator. You can put a slash mark there, Father. The witness of the Father or the originator. Oh, it can be used uh, to ex of, a, of extinguishing a fire or flame. I'm sorry. Extinguishing is number three. 
So the first witness is the witness of the father and originator. Number two there is the witness of himself. And again, we're going to revisit all these. As you can see, these are all from further chapters. Number three, the witness of his works. Number four is the witness of the scriptures. Number five, which is what we just read, is the last prophet, John the Baptist. He was the last of the prophets. After John the Baptist, the prophets kind of became the apostles. There's still those that have been used in prophecy, but Number six, the witness of those who, that Jesus came into contact with. Those that Jesus came into contact with. Or you can put multitudes, I suppose. Number seven is the disciples. And then number eight is the Holy Ghost. Okay, verse number nine. He was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Again, I'm going to give you these answers because we'll be talking about this throughout the book as well. His coming uh, dissipated the shadows of doubt. Remember the Gnostics, the word agnostic, I may have heard of an agnostic. A is not, not knowing. Okay, so the Gnostics believed that they could know, but that it was a distance knowledge. Um, and the pagans believed that. Either, either God lived in the shadows and no man could know him, he was unknowable, uncomprehensible, couldn't be relatable to us, and, and uh, Jesus coming removed that doubt. Number two, his coming dissipated the shadows of despair. We're going to see that throughout the book of John. The, the shadows of despair. Then number three, the darkness of death. We're going to see his resurrection, obviously, show that death was only a doorway to a greater life. And then Jesus is the light that lights every man who comes into the world. Okay, we've got about 15 minutes, and uh, I want to try to get through a couple of these scriptures so that we can kick off next week uh, at a normal breaking point. Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came into his own, and his own received him not. 
But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born of the blood of not, not of the blood, nor of the will of man or of flesh, but of God. So when John writes this, I believe there's two thoughts that were in his mind about not being recognized. In your notes, it says unrecognized, I believe. And uh, so he was thinking of the time before Jesus came into the world in the flesh, okay? Uh, there was a thing called the Westminster Confession of Faith, and it begins by saying this, uh, the lights of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable. Um, in other words, the logos, the mind of God, the reason, has always been active. Uh, you can parallel that to really Romans chapter 1 as well. But theology, the study of God, has always made a distinction between natural or revealed theology. And what I mean by that is creation is a natural declaration of God, but then there's also where he reveals things to us. Revealed theology deals with the truth that comes directly from God in the words of the prophets, his, the book, uh, the Bible, if you will, and supremely in Jesus. And then the natural theology deals with the mind and intellect based on the world in which we live and we grow and we learn and we operate. And so this is, uh, in, in your notes here, how do we see the Logos in the world? There's four ways and, and that we need to, to see him in order to recognize him. Number one, we must look outwards. Remember, John is writing to the Greeks. And in the Greek philosophy, order, where there's order, there's always a mind. There's always something behind it. And so to look outwards upon the world is to come face to face with the God who made it. In other words, when you see the order, it, it's what theologians even call the, the concept of design. Because of what we see around us, there has to be a designer. So we're looking outwards. Number two, we must look upwards. There is a saying that has been said that no astronomer can really be an atheist. Just go, it's hard to do it sometimes in the city because of all the lights, but if you go out in the country, you look up and you see all the stars and you see how everything is existing, it's very hard to realize that there's, or to say that there's no God. Number uh, three there, we must look inwards. The philosopher Kant said long ago that two things convinced, convinced him of the existence of God, the starry heavens above him, and the moral law within him. As much as every country, every culture has laws, all of their laws stem from the laws of God. They just won't declare that, if you will. And then letter D, we must look backwards. Froude, a great historian, said that the whole of history is a demonstration of the moral law in action. So even if Jesus would not have been born, we would be able to look at all of these things and see that there is a designer, that there is a God, that there is a logos, there's a reason, there's a plan. And in the end, God creates and directs uh, to dwell among us. And so... Uh, we begin to see some things in the scriptures. 
Just a couple of more minutes here. Verse number eight in your notes, the children of God. Verses 12 and 13. Uh, there is a sense in this passage in which man is not naturally a child of God. And then there's a sense that he must become a child of God. He's not naturally a child of God, but he can become a child of God. And there is the claim of John that men could only enter into that true and real sonship through Jesus. We'll see that later on in chapter 3, uh, in chapter 7, and, and a couple of other places as well. But there is still a, a human element to consider. What God offers, you and I have to take unto ourselves. Okay, we have to do some, there's some actions that we have to take. We like to say that our new birth is free, but our new birth isn't free. There's some things that we have to do. There's some things that we have to give up, and there's some things that we have to add, and some things that we have to change. There's some things that we have to do, not in order to earn a relationship with him, but because of a relationship with him. Okay? And so we have to believe in him. And uh, I want you to notice something here. Again, the concept of, now I'm just gonna reveal to you, again, trying to be as transparent as I can. Things have changed in the way that I was raised to the way that I believe now. The way that I was raised was that the baptism of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues was the spirit birth. That you, if you did not receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues, you were not born of the spirit. And uh, several years ago, I began to study the concept of that and ask God because it didn't make sense that all through scripture, the baptism of the Holy Ghost is revealed to us as a gift. And in order, the Bible says in John 3, which we'll get to, you must be born of the water and of the Spirit. So if I have to be born of the Spirit, how can it be a gift? If it's a have to, it can't be a gift. If it's a requirement, it can't be a gift. And so I began to study, and this is the passage of scripture that really stood out to me. This in John chapter 7. And I'm going to Close with this, and then we're going to kick off next week with verse 14. And uh, that will be a lot of fun. Uh, verse 12, but as many as received him, began, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of, men, of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Okay, here's the problem that I had with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, is if you'll turn over to John chapter 7 really quick. John chapter 7, there, there's two things that is that, that troubled me, and, and one of them is the fact that verse 14 comes after verse 12 and 13, <clears throat> because John has not revealed that the word has become flesh yet, but yet he's saying that we can be born of God. And then chapter 7, verse 38, it says, He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. But do you notice the certain word in that scripture? The word given? It's in italicized writing. Which means somebody added that to give some 
understanding and sometimes the italicized words give understanding and sometimes they remove some understanding. So if you don't read that word, if you take that word back out, it says the Holy Ghost was not yet. There was no Holy Ghost yet. There was the Holy Spirit of God, deity. God is a spirit. But the gift of the Holy Ghost or the aspect of the Holy Ghost was not yet because Jesus was not yet glorified. Because the Holy Ghost, according to John 14, he said, I will not leave you comfortable. I will come to you. So the Holy Ghost, the baptism of the Holy Ghost, the evidence of speaking in other tongues, is the spirit of the risen Christ that comes into you. It's the blending of the deity and humanity together. But to be born of the spirit, the Bible says in chapter 1 here, it can't come from bone, flesh, or the will of man. So my question to those that believe that the baptism of the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues was the birth of the spirit did not the Holy Ghost have an aspect of Jesus to it? And was Jesus not a man? Was Jesus not have blood? I hope he had blood because it was shed for us on Calvary. And he had a will because in Gethsemane he said, not my will, but thy will be done. And so it opened up a whole understanding that being born of the spirit or born of the water was not the baptism of the Holy Ghost, that God created another way through believing on him and then again, remember what I said last week, I think it was, everything that, or just maybe even earlier tonight, John does everything line by line. There's a progression, okay? He's introducing here the concept of being born again, and he's gonna revisit it in the story of Nicodemus in John chapter three and explain further how, what it means to be born again, okay? So he's just kind of, Wetting the appetite, if you will, in verse 12 and 13 says, and basically saying, listen, if you believe in him, and remember what we talked about believing was, was doing everything that Jesus said and, and following him, that there is an opportunity for you to be born a different way, to be born of God, okay? And I believe that John puts this before he reveals in verse 14 that God was going to become a man because he understood the concept of our thinking and, and the concept of our thinking is that the birth of the spirit is way above the parameters of humanity. Now, we can't be born again until Jesus dies for us, okay? That's the ultimate sacrifice, but that, that's setting the table. But when you're born of the spirit and born of the water, it's something entirely different. Okay, than what we think of as the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And so uh, that leads us up to verse 14 where it says the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And that's where we'll pick up next week. And uh, I, I want to encourage you again just to keep reading. John, you can go ahead uh, and read forward or, or, or just concentrate on this. We're going to work through John chapter 1 next week and uh, finish John chapter 1. And it's, it's, my prayer with this class is that there would be a new revelation that would invigorate deeper study. Okay, I'm not gonna, we're not gonna cover all the answers to this as we teach it, there's just no way. But I'm hoping that something that is said or something that is done triggers a question that then triggers a research 
that then triggers a new revelation. Okay? And here's the one thing that I have learned is that nobody is ever wrong as long as they're seeking. And so, what I mean by that is I'm not here to prove what I believe. I'm here to share the scriptures as how God has spoken it to me. And if you receive them that way, so be it. But again, my desire is something would trigger a question. Because here's how God has, well, the Bible says iron sharpens iron. Uh, most of the time when God begins to lead uh, somebody that studies his word uh, into greater depths is somebody asks a question. It's the reason, one of the reasons why I stopped telling people how to get to heaven because I got tired of having people ask me that question. Now, heaven is a great thing and I'm looking forward to it, but heaven wouldn't be heaven if Jesus isn't there. So let me just get somebody to Jesus. Because if I can get somebody to Jesus, Jesus can take care of everything else. Okay? And, and so, um, just different questions. People would ask me, well, you know, they would tarry for the Holy Ghost. They would seek for the baptism of the Holy Ghost. They'd say, well, I'm not ready for heaven because I haven't spoken in tongues yet. Okay, well, show me that in Scripture. Well, that's how I used to believe because that's the way I was raised until I began to look at Scripture for myself and realize that concept's not really in the Scripture. The speaking in tongues is the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Ghost, but not the birth of the Spirit. Okay? Do you see what I'm saying? So there's all kinds of things that we get tied into because of something that we've been taught, something that we believe. My, uh, my challenge as a teacher is to expose different concepts that will hopefully trigger greater research. Because I, I've got to tell you, I don't know it all yet. I wish I did. Well, I actually, maybe I really don't because if I did, it means I wouldn't be here. Because until we see him face to face, we're looking through a glass darkly. So until that day comes when he calls us home, that's that's my desire is then we can ask him all the questions we want. The problem is, is we're not going to have any because we're not going to really care. We're just going to be glad to be in his presence. Praise God. Listen, here's one thing that I, I, I failed to mention last week. I want to mention it tonight. As you're reading, as we're studying, as you go back over these notes on your own and you have questions, please, please, please write them down. Don't think, well, I'll remember to ask. Just write them down. And uh, if I can't give you an answer, um, I'll search it. I'll, I'll find an answer. Um, I won't just make one up. Um, but I'll, I'll find it, I'll search it. Um, but as much as I've broken down the book of John in the past, there's a lot of times that uh, I will say something that even may sound confusing, but if I can revisit it through a question, so please don't be afraid to ask um, or interrupt as we raise your hand while we're teaching and, and I'll stop and try to answer whatever because I don't want you to become so confused and frustrated. I want you to be excited and challenged to dig deeper. Um, in the things of God. Amen. Look at that, I got the five minutes early.
sometimes we, sometimes what we fall into is we, we like the stories of the Gospels and we fail to peel back the levels of the stories. And, and when we get to some of the stories, that's what we're going to do. Right now, we're, we're, we're still really in John's introduction. And, and there's so much depth to his introduction because the stories are going to be more as we reckon that, for instance, when Jesus in chapter 2 is at a wedding feast and changes water into wine as his first public miracle, and you recognize that that's God manifesting the flesh that cares about the simple little things as wine and water, all of a sudden that story takes on a whole new personality and a whole new characteristic that didn't have when it was just Jesus. I will say this this is one of the reasons why uh, and, and, and I'll say it in this way I have read my Bible through several times um, and, and so but I don't do it as often anymore uh, I'll take parts of scripture and I will just go as deep as I can and it's amazing what you find. Like I said, I've been raised in this, so I've heard stories forever. And when something comes up and God says, remember that you've been taught for 35 years? Yeah, that wasn't the right teaching. <laughs> then you're like, oh, okay, what are you trying to tell me? But then it, it ends up being exciting because like I told my wife, I said, this happened shortly before we moved here and then after we moved here is I began reading the Bible and praying and seeking God not to prove what I thought I knew, but for what he was saying.